Welcome back to Brain Ablaze, a weekly podcast about epilepsy, by epileptics, for epileptics, and their caretakers. I'm your host, David Clifford. In this episode, we try to answer some of the frequently asked questions that patients have about the relationship with their neurologist using statistical data about epilepsy. If you're new to Brain Ablaze, I'm not a medical expert. I'm just someone that has struggled with the ins and outs of epilepsy for almost three decades. The more I think about language, the more it amazes me that people ever understand each other at all. That statement was made by Kurt Goidel, a mathematician and philosopher from Austria. Austria? <laughs> well then, <laughs> good day, mate. <laughs> Let's put another shrimp on the barbie. Kurt Goidel was known for his ability to mix numbers and language. He also said, But every error is due to extraneous factors, such as emotion and education. Reason itself does not err. There is a fair amount of misunderstanding between people of epilepsy and their neurologists. It seems that one of the major causes is that we are far more emotionally infested to find a solution than they are. I mean, how can we expect them to be as attached to our health as us? The randomness of seizures looms over everything we do. My neurologist might see hundreds of patients. I would hate to have her under that much constant emotional stress for me, much less for all of her other patients. Mind you, over my 30 years of dealing with seizures, I've worked with a lot of neurologists that were, well, how can I say this? Well, I'm just gonna go for it, bad. One of the first neurologists I went to in the early 90s spent most of my first appointment measuring the outside of my head because he had a theory that seizures were caused by anomalies in the patient's craniums. But those science chicks really dig that large cranium of yours, huh? I think they're more interested in my epididymis. Phew. I'm glad that the times have certainly changed since then. While there are very few bad apples, most neurologists that I've worked with are good, decent people that are excellent at their jobs. Yet more and more often, I hear people of epilepsy ask the following questions. Why doesn't my neurologist listen to me? Why does my neurologist just push medication on me? Why is my neurologist so terrible? In actuality, what they should be asking is, Why are my seizures so difficult to diagnose? So let's try to answer those questions here, together. Why doesn't my neurologist listen to me? If this is the patient's first appointment with a neurologist after having just one seizure, don't be surprised if the neurologist, after taking the patient's information, ultimately suggests that they wait and see what happens. It's important to realize that although one out of 10 people might have a seizure in their lifetime, only one out of 26 will actually develop epilepsy. That means there's a huge chance that the patient will only meet with the neurologist once. And this is why some neurologists might come across as standoffish. You know, you don't talk very much. I like you. If the appointment is after the patient's second seizure, the neurologist will be far more persistent to learn about every detail of the event. The patient might feel that they've had a seizure, but an experienced neurologist knows that there are many different disorders that mimic the symptoms of an epileptic event. While the doctor is dedicated to learning more, it is important to realize that they are only working with the information that the patient gives them. If one presents secondhand hearsay of what could have happened, then I'm sure the doctor might actually think, Just the facts, ma'am. That's why it's so important for a patient to bring as much information as they possibly can to the neurologist to make their case. A recent study has shown that even one additional video of a patient's seizure can improve the diagnosis by up to 16%. 
Why does my neurologist push medication on me? Well, let's imagine the patient is now in the interview after the second seizure. About 70% of patients with epilepsy can effectively prevent their seizures through medication. The reason why it feels that your neurologist is pushing medication on you is that they are. To prevent further seizures, they are likely to take that 70% bet. I mean, wouldn't you? Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. How can he close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. What happens when that bet goes bust and that first medication doesn't work? The process of finding the correct dosage for a particular medication that causes the least number of side effects is called dosage mapping. In my experience, it is within this stage that the most conflict between neurologists and patients seems to either appear or increase tenfold. Dosage mapping goes like this. The neurologist will choose a prescription for the patient to take for the next few months, after which the patient and doctor will both meet to discuss the details regarding the prescription side effects and its ability to prevent seizures. If the medication prevented the patient's seizures, Jackpot! That's great! The patient wins. The process of dosage mapping ends with a prescription that the patient can use. If the patient has a seizure since the last meeting with the neurologist, the doctor has a decision to make. Every anti-epileptic drug, or AED, has side effects. The higher the prescription, the more intense the side effects. Do you think so? Will an increase in the dosage of the existing prescription make the side effects more intense and override the probability to prevent future seizures? Only after the doctor makes this difficult decision can a recommendation be made to the patient. There are three different choices. One, to stay at the existing dosage and see if things improve by themselves. Two, to increase the dosage and hope that the side effects don't get worse. Or three, start from scratch with a whole new medication. After the patient and the neurologist agree, the whole process starts over with a new prescription. And a few months later, they meet again. That seems simple. In theory, yes. But here's where it breaks down terribly. This process is long. Most patients new to epilepsy don't understand how long this process takes. How long? Let's imagine that the patient meets with their doctor every three months, but is forced to increase the prescription three times. That means that the patient might spend a whole year to determine if a medication is effective or not. The process of dosage mapping often leads patients to ask the third and most critical question. Why is my neurologist so terrible? Whether going through dosage mapping with one medication or many, after experiencing seizures for months and months and months during the dosage mapping stage, most patients become impatient. Remember, approximately 30% of us have retractable epilepsy, meaning that there isn't an AED that can help. During the dosage mapping phase, 30% start to question the process when they hear progress reports from the other 70% where medicine does actually work. Thinking that all seizures are the same, they ask themselves, why isn't my epilepsy under control yet? What often happens is that the neurologist usually receives the brunt of this frustration. Ah, this is taking so long because my doctor. Most of the time, it isn't the neurologist's fault at all. Instead, it's about a process and their tools. Why is my epilepsy so difficult to diagnose? The truth is that no neurologist will put all of their eggs into the dosage mapping basket. 
Instead, while the mapping continues, they'll use other tools at their disposal in parallel to try to solve the cause of the patient's continuing seizures. An MRI, PEP scan, and blood test can often give immediate results on which the neurologist can act. For example, a tumor or a lesion or blood sugar issues. If a patient is experiencing recurring seizures, the best thing that the neurologist can report is that the patient's EEG results came back positive with epileptic activity. But a positive test means that something's wrong, right? Yes, exactly. It is the opposite of what you might think, but here's why. Let's say a patient has a two-minute seizure once every week. The odds of the patient will have a full-blown seizure during a 10-minute EEG test is less than 0.1%. The odds that the patient has epileptic activity is, of course, higher than having a full-blown seizure. However, an EEG will often provide a false negative because it can only confirm that the patient experiences epileptic activity while the test is running. After receiving a single negative EEG test, patients will often think and even report to their friends that they don't have epilepsy. Unfortunately, in a few months, when the next seizure hits, the patient grows even more confused and upset. That's why there are tests like the ambulatory EEG or even inpatient video EEGs that try to increase the duration to which the patient is connected to the EEG machine. The hope is that if a patient is connected to the device over days, a seizure will be captured. Still, according to the International League Against Epilepsy, quote, between approximately 20 to 50% of the people who undergo video EEG are found to have psychogenic seizures, end quote. That means that they don't have epileptic activity and AEDs will not actually help. The relationship between patient and neurologist is ever so important. Though there are a few duds out there, our heart goes out to the neurologist that get criticized for not the job they do, but the job they are perceived to not do because annoyed patients fail to put the effort to learn about the process to which neurologists adhere. I can honestly say that you and your neurologists have the same goal in that you both want to prevent future seizures. We would love to hear any of your comments or questions regarding this or any of the other episodes. You can reach out to us through email at social at brainblaze.com or on Twitter at brainblaze. If you like this episode, consider helping us out by providing a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. One small click really does help. See you next time.